Hello everybody, welcome to the Fire Science Show. I hope you're enjoying your holiday period. I, I certainly am in the Polish mountains. Uh, last week I had Kevin McGratton to talk about the development of FDS. And that episode is just as I've expected, blowing up. People seem to be enjoying that. So as promised in that episode, I have a part two for you, some sort of part two. This episode I, I gladly place in the experiments that have changed the fire science miniseries. I'm going to discuss with Kevin the World Trade Center fire investigation. We're going to jump into how NIST has approached this uh, investigation, what had to be changed in FDS in order to allow for uh, simulations on this massive, massive scale, like no one ever did before. And what was the point of doing that? Like, where did it fit into the puzzle of, of figuring out what caused the, the collapse of, of Twin Towers in New York? So, certainly a very Interesting topic, both uh, learning about the World Trade Center fire that was probably one of the biggest fires in terms of political consequences of the world, probably the biggest in the 21st century so far. And I really find it astounding how fire science can be used to unravel cause of the events of, of such a big tragedy. So I'm not going to prompt this anymore. If you enjoyed the episode with uh, Kevin last week, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one as well. If you have not heard the episode last week, well, Put it on your playlist just after this one, because it is, is great as well. And uh, yeah, let's jump straight into it. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wiengrzyński, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Good news. I have Kevin one more time. Hello, Kevin. Great, great to have you back in the podcast. All right. Good to be back. It, it feels like if we just ended talking five minutes ago, right? <laughs> Amazing. I'm really thankful that, that you agreed to, to do a second episode. And it's also related to the development of FDS. But this time, the episode is within the theme of experiments that change the fire science. And when You were building FTS very early in, in his life. It, it became a very significant part of World Trade Center investigation. I guess everyone knows that, but 2001, uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, at that point, that they were the biggest buildings in the world. Maybe not the tallest, right. but at some point they were. Yep. Two big towers in, in New York were hit by airplanes. And consequence of that terrorist attack was uh, large fires in both of them. And they both collapsed. And, and it was, uh, for Americans, for the whole world, it was a tragedy. It had significant political and economical effects that I guess we probably some branches still, still feel up to today. And, uh, because it, it, it was important for, for US, there was a large, uh, investigation in, in how it happened that these towers have, uh, have collapsed. And NIST was uh, the main party of that, right? In, in terms of fire. Right. Right. Yeah. Can, can you give me like the background, like how, how NIST was given this, this important task? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we have in the United States, a number of government organizations that investigate accidents. So for example, there, there's the National Transportation Safety Board. And if, if we have an airplane crash, for example, mm -hmm. they will investigate. And I think, I think most countries have yep. these kinds of organizations. But in the U.S., there really wasn't a single government entity that looked at building failures and collapses. Mm -hmm. So after 9-11, yeah. 
because we did have some experience looking at building accidents that had occurred in the previous decades, we were selected by an act of Congress to form this, you know, the National Construction Safety Team, I think is Mm -hmm. what it was called. And so the first task was to identify the causes of the collapse of World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, World Trade Center 7 is the, the building that fell towards the end of the day on 9-11. Okay. So when we, when we were tasked with this, you know, we got together and decided who was going to do what, how much of the work was going to be done internally, how much of the work was going to be contracted out. And so to investigate the collapse, there were really four different components to the, to the investigation. The first part was the airplane crash itself. Okay. That are, what damage to the buildings did the aircraft do? You can think of that as simulating the first, you know, one second of the act. In terms of like mechanical response of the building to the Mechanical hit? response of the building. You know, mm-hmm. what was the state of the building five seconds after impact? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the second component was the fire. What started the fire? How did the fire spread? What types of um, heat fluxes did the interior of the building see for sex? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was number two. Number three was a detailed calculation of the heat penetration into the structural steel. Now, that had to be a separate component because, you know, we were going to use FDS for the fire spread, but to actually look at the details of how the steel members were heating up I mean, FDS does not have that capability. So that was the third component. And the fourth component was then the mechanical collapse. Literally, what caused the building to, to fall down? And so I was, you know, part of the team to look at the fire. Mm-hmm. So at that point, FDS was still in a, a pretty primitive state. We could only run FDS on a single processor, for example. So we knew that we had to really ramp up quickly mm-hmm. in order to do this calculation at all. I remember on 9-11, I came to work and I was walking down the hall and, a, and one of my coworkers called me into his office and said, hey, Kevin, can you simulate this fire? And on his computer screen was the news footage from World Trade Center. And I looked at that and I said, what is that? Because I hadn't, you know, I just got into the work, hadn't heard what had happened. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, yeah, I think we're going to need to do a lot of work in order to reconstruct this. And that's when we really started in earnest to start thinking about doing calculations like on a building scale as opposed to just on a room scale. Yeah, so, so in the previous episode, we've discussed the origins of FDS. If, if someone missed that, I highly recommend uh, learning how, how we received the tool we, we have today. But as you said in that episode, FDS was at that point a collection of tools merged together into one a uh, larger solver, so you had, uh, let's say, an universal model that you could apply to different things. But even though that you were applying it to industrial buildings, I don't think it was meant to simulate multiple floors of, of such a huge building. I mean, I, I, right. was it like 80 right. by 80 meters? Uh, about 64 by 64 meters. 64 by 60. Yeah, so it's, it's quite a large building, right? So even the scale at, at the start was was way beyond what you probably had at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. And, and we were only doing calculations on single processors and we knew we had to break it up. But one of the things that was going, working in our favor was the fact that the buildings had identical floors, you know, one okay. on top of the other means that we could easily, 
you know, once we develop the technique, we can, you know, basically assign individual processors to individual floors and look at larger and larger parts of the building by just adding more and more computer processors. So it was a natural for parallelization is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. so, so th- th- this was the moment where you, you have found that, okay, multiple CPUs, this is the necessity for, for this project. Yeah, yeah. Nice, uh, in- interesting. How a disaster uh, fuels growth from which we benefit today still. Like. Yeah. Unfortunately, human tragedy always leads to technical innovation. It's just the way it is. Yeah, in, in fire, I think that's the story yeah. of, of fire science. So you were tasked with a very important uh, modeling task. Because of the political impact around uh, 9-11, there was a lot of like conspiracy theories. It, it, I remember these times. I, I was very young back then. I think I was like finishing my high school back then. And then the noise around this, this fire, like can a fire take down the building of this size or not? It was designed for an impact of a plane. It was not certain, like, what exactly happened. And then NIST is given the task to uh, verify what happened and how it happened. And you're burdened with proving that beyond any doubt, I guess. Right. There were were actually two sources of noise. One source of noise was this group of people who, who actually had a lot of money behind them. I don't know why or how, but... It was a group of people who insisted that towers were intentionally demolished, that this was a conspiracy by, I don't know, the U.S. government, the Israeli government. I don't know. I mean, how many different entities were involved? Mm-hmm. This was some, somehow an inside job that these towers would never have fallen the way they did if they were simply impacted by aircraft. So that was, that was one source of noise. But the other source of noise was the fact that there was a tremendous loss of money. In, in an event like this. And there, there was litigation that, and for all I know, it's still going on today, where we have the building owner who had only recently acquired these buildings from the Port Authority. Of course, the building owner was being sued. Port Authority was being sued. Uh, Con Edison, who, who had a substation below Building 7, mm. they were being sued or suing. I mean, there were so many different lawsuits going on at once. That made it difficult to get information, okay? Because when we do our fire modeling, we need to know, so what types of commodities can you find on these different floors? Mm-hmm. And all of the building tenants, or most of the building tenants, because of all these lawsuits, they were not willing to share that information with us. And of course, you know, you can potentially use subpoena power, but as we all know, there, there are limits to the kind of information that you can get. So a lot of the modeling that we did on the towers was using, you know, speculation as to what the contents of the floors actually were. Okay. Um, I don't know how it is in Europe, but here in the United States, whenever there's a significant fire, there's significant litigation. And that always makes it difficult to, to gather information. I was never a part of, of such a project, but we, we just had the Grenfell Inquiry in the UK, which I, I, I guess... Yes. The scale yes. of that was, was most likely very, very yes. similar. So, so I can imagine, uh, the complexities around that and the fact that you're here, not just doing science for science, but, uh, actually that's a real case, which is in the courts. 
And whatever you say, one or the other uh, side will very happily take and, and use. No, exactly. Exactly. So when the reading the, the final report, first thing that struck me was the size of the fire. There's a plot uh, showing uh, heat release rates of two uh, gigawatts. That's that's mm-hmm. two thousands right. megawatts. Right. That's a fire of uh, of a magnitude I've never seen in, right. in anywhere. Like that's insane size of a fire. What was astonishing for me was, you know, we collected thousands and thousands of photographs and videos. And when you look at these videos, you see fire, you know, not only in the impact area, but in some places, these fires had been sparked in quite remote locations. Of course, that fueled the conspiracy theorists, but actually, <laughs> just due to the fact that, you know, that initial impact and that firewall, you know, raced up and down the elevators, shafts and the staircases and started mm-hmm. fires on these floors that were, you know, quite distant from the impact zone. So yes. we were trying to, you know, make sense of that aspect of it with our, with our models. And there's, there's just a certain amount of randomness to it that really can't be predicted by a model. As someone who's passionate about compartment fires and the fire physics at all. I even find difficult to qualify that size of a fire. Like it, it was not fuel control for sure, but I don't think it was even ventilation control. In somewhere in the report, uh, there was uh, mentioning that the rate how oxygen penetrates space uh, does uh, may dictate also the size as a certain way of, of ventilation control. Right. So I, I guess the, the, the size, the certain features, these were the reasons why FDS was chosen for it. Let's move back. Why, why was actually FDS chosen for this? Well, we we decided early on that because there's nothing left of these buildings, that we're going to have to numerically simulate everything. Okay. From the impacts all the way through the collapse. And it was clear that even though FDS, uh, it was quite a challenge for FDS, we knew that the zone type models that were available at that time really were not designed for this very large open expanse. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about a 64 meter by 64 meter footprint of each floor. You know, zone models were not designed for that kind of large area. Yeah. And these towers were not compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. The North Tower in particular was literally just open space between the exterior. Completely open. Just completely open. All the way around the core. All the way around the core. And so okay. we really can't address a fire with a zone model. So we knew we had to do CFD. FDS was obviously the CFD program that we that we knew about, that we that we knew how to work with. That's how the decision was made. So to start with the, the geometry of the of the building. So you had the geometry of the building before the accident, because I, I assume you you've received some blueprints. We received blueprints for some of the floors. For other floors, we never received them because the tenants did not want to give them up. Mm. Um, so we had to just use the information that we had and make inferences to the other floors. I mean, we did, we did talk to some of the survivors and, and they would talk about there being, you know, more or less compartmentalization on a given floor. The, the yeah. biggest uncertainty for us really was not so much, you know, exactly how the offices were laid out on these floors, but how much damage there was to the core, because you talked before about ventilation. Yeah. And in our fire model, we had to make some assumption as to how much the elevator shafts, the inner core had been opened up. Because if, mm-hmm. if that's not opened up, then the 
only the air can only get to the fire from the exterior. But if you open up that interior core, now you have a source of oxygen coming up through the stair shafts, through the elevator shafts, and supplying the fire from the interior as well as the exterior. And a massive chimney. Uh... Yeah, a massive chimney. That's exactly right. And we, and by looking at just the the videos of the smoke pouring out of the upper floors, we knew that there had to be substantial damage to the core for all of that smoke from the fires to be drawn upwards, you know, through the center of the building and out the, out the roof. And how did you achieve this initial uh, data point? I, I've read that there was uh, some LSDyna simulations, if I'm correct. Yeah, so the airplane impact was done with LSDyna. So they gave us some estimates as to what type of damage there was to the core. Mm-hmm. But we also then ran a bunch of FDS models. We didn't just run one calculation. We ran FDS over and over and over again. And each time we would vary the amount of damage to the interior. Okay. And with each one of these calculations, we would look at the results of the calculation, compare them with the actual video of the fire progression through and around the building. And we just made the assumption that the one that most closely matched the actual visual observation was the one that we chose as kind of our final end result, which we then passed on to the next team for them to do their analysis of the heat penetration or the mechanical collapse. So this this wasn't like a pure prediction. Like we used the model to give us some sense of what the fire behavior would be. But we also looked at all of those videos and photographs to make sure that our model was predicting something close to reality. So you, you were working back like what happened? Yes, yes. And how did each simulation, how, how long did they take? Oh, we, something on that order, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. now the, the, the second thing about the, the plane crash. So the plane also left a significant amount of jet fuel in, in the buildings. Right. Which right. triggered the initial fireball and the initial fire growth of the... I guess that is the peak at the very beginning of the simulation where yes. it goes so yeah. high. So, so right. how, how did you know where was this fuel distribution? Also like a probabilistic approach? Uh, well, so that was also Everest Dyna, the compact analysis did make some predictions as to where the fuel were. We did an analysis of the firewall and there was a very rough, and I mean very rough calculation that estimated how much fuel would have been consumed just by the fireball. Okay. And then there were also some assumptions about how much of the fuel poured down the elevator shaft. Because, Uh you know, there are eyewitness accounts of fires, you know, up and down the elevator shaft, even even in the lobby itself, which must have been the result of just that initial, you know, burst of, of vaporized fuel. And so... There was an estimate of like literally about half of the fuel was probably consumed within, you know, seconds of impact. And then with the rest of the fuel, we just distributed it in our calculation, you know, roughly where the impact analysis predicted it would be. The simulations weren't really all that sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. However, we started the fire, the fire tended to progress based on the window breakage and the damage to the interior core. Those two things you know, really had the most impact on the calculation. And that makes sense, right? Because yeah. it's an oxygen-limited fire. So if you just look to see where the oxygen is 
is entering the building, that gives you a sense of where the fire is going to be. And, and and the windows were also your connection to reality because you had the footage and you could tell, like, when did they break, right? That's right. That's right. We had okay. a whole team of people who went over those photographs and videos, and they were able to give me literally to the nearest two minutes the time that each window broke out. And that's over like eight or nine floors. It was an incredible amount of work. For two towers. For the two towers to literally label every single window with the breakage. That had a huge effect on the calculations because that's not something that could have easily predicted because as you well know, predicting when a window is going to break, is, mm. there, there's a lot of randomness to that. So in your final models of the towers, the window breakage would be dictated by the reality or was it the outcome of the simulation itself? So the window breakage was input into the line. Input, okay. So we did, yeah. not, we did not try to predict when the windows would break. But rather, we input that into the model and that then provided the oxygen supply to the fire. Okay. Now, let's talk about the most important input, which is the, the fire growth itself. In the, in the previous episode, we talked about the early days of FTS. Uh, it's evolving from uh, ping pong balls carrying uh, fuel and energy to more and more sophisticated uh, solvers of single-step reaction, multi-step reactions, eventually right. pyrolysis model. Yep. What point of development was this? Like, was it? We were in the single reaction. So this, I think, was FDS three. So it would have been just the mixture fraction approach, one single step reaction, mixing control. For us, the the trouble with the fire was determining what the fuel load was. And again, okay. we had for some floors we had a fairly good idea from the tenants as to what was typically, you know around, you know, how many of these little office workstations you would find, whether or not people were required to clean up their desks at the end of the day. Some of these companies did a lot of financial work and they were required to put all of the paperwork into filing cabinets at the end of the day. Mm. Uh-huh. So those offices were relatively clean and we took that into account when we did the simulations, but we did a variety of simulations with a variety of fuel loads. So they were like, half a dozen different major parameters that we would vary as we did these calculations to figure out which one of these calculations gives us the most realistic mm. result. First, to define the initial uh, growth, there were experiments performed on the workstations. Yes. And he, yes. He, he, here's the connection to the experiments that changed the fire science. <laughs> I, I would not dare to call the, the big fire the experiment, but, but here yeah. you have run uh, very sophisticated experiments to actually measure the growth of the fire in a workstation um, assembly, uh, out right. of which you, first, you later, you use them as building blocks to build your floors. So maybe yeah. you can tell us, like, how, how did you come to an idea that we need to burn a, a whole workstation first and then see how we can model that? Well, we were concerned that if we just used a numerical model to predict the fire spread, that we may be way off. We didn't have a lot of confidence that we could outright predict the burning rate of one of these office workstations. Because you've got, you know, these privacy panels, the desk, a computer, chair, carpeting, piles of paper, books, you know, on mm-hmm. and up, right? So you can imagine there's no way that we could just, with, surely with a numerical model, figure out the heat release rate from that load of fuel. So we figured out the biggest possible compartment we could fit into our test building. And we put a facade on the compartment that, you know, mimicked the actual facade of the World Trade Center. So our thought was, 
we're going to do like a chunk of the towers. We're going to mock up what, you know, one sixteenth of a floor might look like from the exterior all the way to the interior core. We're going to, you know, put some workstations in there, populate those workstations with what the tenants said that they would typically have in those workstations. And then we ran a series of experiments. And our primary goal was to validate the fire model. We wanted to make sure that we would get, you know, the same types of temperatures, spread rates, heat release rates from these experiments. And mm -hmm. it turned out we, we chose um, representative fuel packages that gave us about the right sort of behavior as we saw in these experiments. So it was almost like we calibrated the model with these, you know, these office workstations that became like the basic fuel that we put into the model. Like a, like a packages. Each one, each workstation was like a package. And we, yeah. we just assumed that that's the way that each floor was laid out. How did you decide when another package ignites? Was it based on ignition temperature, rather yes. than flux? Okay. Ignition temperature. So we did, we did cone calorimetry on all of the individual items. And then from the cone, we estimated ignition temperature, basic material properties. And so we would use that approach. That is, the item would heat up. When it reaches its ignition temperature, it would start burning at a rate that we determined from the cone calorimeter. But th that's where you stop. You, you didn't go into some fancy, I don't know, pyrolysis modeling no. that just no. just you had an experimental defined heat release rate. No. And did you modify it based right. on the on this comparison with the real footage, or or you just left it and it? Changed? No, I think I think we I think we had to tweak some of the um, properties because, as you know, it's very difficult to take you know, raw cone calorimeter data and yes. scale it up to full scale. Yeah, that, that many people have realized <laughs> this in the most painful way. And I considered one of them. <laughs> yeah, yes, it, it, mean, it is for, difficult. For us, we, we wanted just to make sure that, you know, those fuel packages that we put into the model were as close to real as we could get them. Okay. You know, we were trying to, This was not an exercise in pure fire science. We wanted to do whatever we needed to do in the calculations to get <clears> something that was realistic. But we knew that these things, that this was all a rough approximation. We didn't know exactly how many of these workstations there were on any given floor. So there were, there were all sorts of other approximations that we were making. We just wanted to make sure that these fuel packages were, were reasonable. So um, you validated your model with this. Actually, you, you give a very um, interesting discussion on uncertainty and uh, ability to LFDS to predict the fire environment with a specified release rate. It's very interesting, a discussion. Mm -hmm. Then you've, once you had that validated, you've moved to modeling the, the whole like array of floors mm -hmm. and compare that to the, to the video footage and tweak a little bit until you've received your, your final simulation. So what, what uh, were the things you were looking in the final simulation? So the, For us, the matching of where the fire was located in our simulation, mm -hmm. like where the most intense part of the fire was compared to the videos and photographs. Because in the videos and photographs, you, you can see where the fire is kind of moving. You know, one minute it's at window 49, the next minute it's at window 52. We call it traveling now. <laughs> yeah, the traveling fire. So exactly. So we want to you know, how long did it take for this fire to go from window three to window 59. Okay. And best match was what we consider to be our best estimate of the fire conditions within those buildings. And, and having this simulation, 
you were looking into the temperature profiles that could be given to the structural engineers. Right. So we, we developed a means by which the temperatures that we were predicting could be handed off to the next team. And then they would take those temperatures as basically like the exposing temperatures and apply them to a much more detailed model of the steel. And for that, they used ANSYS, the mm. commercial package where you could model the, the steel members mm. with much more fidelity that you could, than you could in FDF. Yeah, we, we call that mechanical now, I think. Uh, but uh, it, it used to be ANSYS at that point. Out of curiosity, how exactly did you transfer the temperature? Uh, was it the time where adiabatic surface temperature was already a concept or not? No, no, actually, I, I wish it were because that would have made our lives a lot easier. <laughs> okay. No, what we did is we, we just created these very large files that had basically like every, let's say every meter, an upper layer temperature. And of gas temperature. Gas temperature. And then those gas temperatures would be applied to the model of the structural steel. So it would call, calculate the convection radiation uh, yes. and everything on its own. Like I said, I mean, the adiabatic surface temperature would have been the, the preferred way to do that because it, it simplifies greatly the description of the exposing fire. And the impact of wind, because it was uh, the, the fires happened at, at very large heights above the ground. So there was significant, like the plume is like horizontal of the, of the fire. Right. right. So, so right. how did you deal with the wind? In the end, we really didn't. I did try to do some calculations early on, putting a very large grid all around the building to simulate or to allow the wind to form naturally. But that just was too much for our computers to handle. And so we ended up just having to neglect the wind from our calculations. It didn't factor in. I guess uh, for a fire of, of this magnitude, maybe the wind may not be the necessarily the strongest factor in terms of the exchange of air at the openings. Yeah. Because if you yeah. have 2,000 megawatt fire, right. that on its own is a huge pump, right? Yeah, and I, I think that the, the far greater unknown was the amount of damage to the core, mm. you know, how much oxygen was penetrating into the interior of a building. Okay, that's interesting. I would never think about that being at this level of significance. Right, So. Right. Wow, this is an amazing uh, journey. Like you've entered it with a young model, uh, a fresh new tool out of box uh, that people just started using for impressive fire engineering projects. Uh, what do they call all of the models that were that were used? LS Dyna, FDS, Ansys. All of these models were being pushed. <laughs> to uh, their, this is especially like the, for the building. I mean, usually when you design a building, you're only looking at you know, very minor uh, deflections of the structural steel, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, look, you know, anyone who designs a building is not trying to predict how it will collapse. Most people are just looking at typical loads and how, how you have slight deflections of, of the steel members. So these models were not being used the way they're typically used. Who would develop models specifically for this application? So what do you think were the main developments that stayed with us? Like, okay, I'll name first few and then you fill the list. I'll, I'll name the easy ones. The multi multiprocessor capabilities of FDS, the ability to transfer data outside of FDS. But, mm -hmm. but have, you, have you developed something else for, for this project particularly? I think just the methodology by which we conducted the investigation, that is, 
fire is one of these um, fields of engineering where we apply technical tools to accidents, mm-hmm. right? I mean, usually when you when you talk about mm-hmm. CFD, you're usually talking about you know designing an airplane or predicting the weather. I mean, here we're using CFD as part of an investigation, and I think that was somewhat of a unique aspect to all this. That we're using this scientific technique as a means of investigating, you know, this tragic event. And ever since that time, I mean, FDS is used all the time now to investigate mm. fire big and small. And I think it was the the World Trade Center investigation that kind of opened up the possibility that, yeah, this, this is a viable tool for investigating the progression of a fire. And what was the response of the fire science and engineering community to to this? Was it like enthusiastic that we have a tool that could predict how would the towers collapse? How it was received by the by the community? That's hard to say because everybody was involved in the litigation. So <laughs> either, okay. That was a topic you either, didn't talk at the banquets. Well, or it was like either you sort of believe the model or you didn't, okay. depending on what side of the okay. case you were on. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. No, there wasn't a lot of discussion because again, I'm actually being partially serious here. Okay? You know, one of the best satisfying aspects of the World Trade Center investigation is that I was not free to talk about it with anybody. I really wish I could. I really wish that I could have gone to fire meetings and said, okay, here's my calculation. What do you think? And and had other people run similar calculations and had kind of an exchange back and forth. But because of the the litigation, that that was not possible. My my perception of a lot of stuff that happened around Grenfell is similar. That yes. It, yes. it 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 was just a too big tragedy to talk around it, and, and for some right. reason, a lot of stuff remained silent, which I, I guess it should not for the greater of of the whole community. Maybe it should not. It is what it is. I find efforts to 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 figure out the collapse uh, very interesting. Maybe you can uh, before we end. Maybe you can tell me a little more about the Watch Center Seven. Was this a very similar case to one and two? Actually, world. Trade Center 7 was quite different. One of the things that made World Trade Center 7 an interesting problem was, it's hard to, it's hard to describe this just in a podcast, but um, the footprint of the building was a trapezoid, okay? Because of the way that uh, the big avenues in New York City, as they, as they approached the southern tip of the island, they tend to converge. Mm-hmm. And so this building was had a unique footprint based on the, the layout of the streets at that point, at that part of Manhattan. And the big columns of the building were redirected on the fifth floor. So on the fifth floor of the building, there was a machinery space. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of large columns that were redirected at that point in the building because the, how should I say, the pilings mm-hmm. in the bedrock below mm-hmm. Manhattan were not originally designed for that particular building. Okay. They were designed for an earlier building. And so they had to kind of reshape it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And when that building collapsed, a lot of people pointed to that space and said, there must have been something about the way that the loads from these massive columns, the way it was redirected. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, and this, this actually came out in our investigation was the fact that you know, these horizontal um, steel members were not at right angles to each other. Because of the trapezoidal shape 
of the building, you didn't have the floor joists meeting at right angles. And so as the steel heated up, it would tend to push the adjacent steel in different directions that are not typically seen in this mm. kind of pocket. So there were, there were a number of unusual aspects to this building. And so we focused a lot of our attention on this machinery space where we think that the collapse might have been initiated. But the problem is because of the fact that the two towers had collapsed and the debris from those towers started fires in this building seven, we didn't have nearly as good a photographic record Mm -hmm. of the fire progression in that building. So with the towers, we knew, you know, minute by minute where the fires were, how they were progressing, how they were spreading. Building seven was obscured by smoke for much Mm -hmm. of the time because, I mean, as you know, all of lower Manhattan was just shrouded with all of the debris from the two towers. So we didn't have as much of the visual evidence as we needed, and we couldn't definitively place a big fire on that fifth floor such that that would be big enough to compromise Mm. the Um. steel cogs at that particular location. Now, there was speculation by various people who were doing various investigations, you know, as part of the different litigation that that was where the smoking gun was and and it, it all came down to, you know, who was responsible for that collapse, whether it was the building owner, whether it was the poor authority, whether it was the power company that owns, you know, the, the lower part of the building. So that was a big part of the problem is that we, we couldn't communicate with our colleagues in exchange notes. Mm. Uh, and there was another problem, and that is the, a lot of the conspiracy theory focused on building stuff. Okay. Because no. it was believed that Decisions that were made during the day pointed to the fact that someone must have planted explosives in there and on and on and on. And so that was also a big distraction for us to, you know, to get information and reconstruct what actually happened. Okay. For the very final question, have you ever considered repeating the study or revisiting that with the newer FTS? No, that sounds mm-hmm. like a good, exa- that sounds like a good thing for a graduate student. <laughs> or a PhD student. <laughs> okay. Believe it or not, no, I've, I've never gone back to it. I mean, I still have all the input files. I think they're from FDS four. I mean, it would be a, it would be a tremendous amount of work to kind of bring those files like up to speed. And um, no, I've never had the heart to go back. <laughs> I, I was just, I was just curious. I was just curious. Like, I assume if if today you got the same job to do with with the current uh, stage of FTS. There would be so so much more you, you could uh, play with, and then I mean, just just having the increased resolution right? yeah. and being able to do these with two hundred computers as opposed to sixteen that we used at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I could run these calculations faster. We could look at more variables. Yeah, we could probably do the analysis in much less time than we did back then. Yeah, probably you could also like go for some sort of pyrolysis or or lump model for the for the fuel. Interesting yeah. how how it would be how it would be done today. Maybe, maybe right. if some student if some if there's a crazy student in the audience, please come up and <laughs> there's a job to be done. Yeah. You I, will I, be famous. I, <laughs> I have heard of students who have reconstructed notable fires from the past, like these yeah. the various theater fires that occurred in the U.S. back in the like 1940s. There is sort of an interest in forensic fire investigation. I've been mean, looking at these past yeah. fires and. And seeing if the conclusions that were drawn in time, you know, really still hold. Very interesting. Okay, Kevin, thank you very much. Uh, investigation that happened 20 years ago, 
that required significant amount of research and and development for tools that that we use today. I, I clearly call that uh, something that that changed uh, fire science for for sure. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, was, it was definitely an interesting uh, time to be be living. Thank you very much uh, for for coming once again, and I guess Happy New Year. This yeah. is gonna air just before the New Year, so Happy New Year to everyone. Okay, Happy New Year. And that's it. Thank you, Kevin, for two great episodes of the Fire Science Show. I have really enjoyed learning about the FDS and its capabilities and how the software was used in the World Trade Center investigation. I don't think I'll, I'll go into a very deep summary of, of this episode. I'm, I'm still in my, with my parents at holiday, so probably should get going back to the family. I, I just wanted to take this opportunity to wish you all the best for the next year, 2023. It is looking amazing for the podcast. It's looking really good for me. I hope it will bring us some good times. I hope it will bring us some relief from the stuff happening around. There is still war going over a border, not very far from where I am. And that's still depressing a bit. But I, I hope there's a, there's a nice light in the end of this tunnel and uh, we will finally have peace for Ukraine. We will have uh, some good economic perspectives, end of recession maybe. I'm really hoping that this will eventually come. I wish it comes in 2023, hopefully early in the 2023. And so far, yeah, all the best for the new year. And you, one thing you can be sure, next uh, Wednesday, 4th of uh, January, podcast is uh, still going to be here. So see you then there. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.